Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening. I'm Dr. Don Hopkins, the Vice President for Health Programs here at the Carter Center, and I want to welcome all of you here and thank you for joining us. I suspect that the, uh, the weather here has uh, kept a few people away or made them late, though uh, I woke up this morning in Chicago where it's, uh, minus, it was minus, minus nine degrees uh, this morning. The, I want to especially welcome uh, the students that are here uh, with us and I'll welcome all of you to our conversations at the Carter Center. This series, uh, The Conversations, gives us an opportunity to discuss Carter Center peace and health efforts and uh, current world issues with our neighbors here in Atlanta and others who watch uh, online. I encourage you to learn more about uh, upcoming conversations and also watch uh, past uh, conversations and other events at uh, conversations. You can also subscribe to uh, Carter Center podcasts of this series on iTunes. That's my personal uh, favorite uh, format. When I ask everybody to please uh, turn off your cell phones, and uh, tonight we're going to uh, discuss the Carter efforts to eradicate guinea worm uh, disease. We're also going to give you an opportunity to uh, ask us some questions about uh, our work, us being myself and Dr. Ernesto Ruiz Tibbin, who's director of our guinea worm eradication program. I'm going to talk more about him a little bit uh, later. Now, this campaign against guinea worm disease began at the Centers for Disease Control and uh, Prevention in a little ways from here in October 1980. At that time, guinea worm disease was relatively unrecognized and, uh, in fact, in some instances, was actively scorned by some of the uh, uh, international uh, agencies. Most of you know, but for those of you who may not know, this is a parasitic infection that uh, at maturity is a two to three foot long worm, very thin, like a thin strand of spaghetti that comes out of people's bodies directly through their skin on any place on their body. People are infected by drinking water from open stagnant sources such as ponds that has been contaminated by other victims that have gone into such water with such worms coming out of the body where the female worm ejects hundreds of thousands of larvae into the water. The microscopic form in the water at that stage uh, is uh, itself invisible, but uh, it's quite visible when it begins to emerge from people's bodies, as you will see. Now, when we began this, we piggybacked the guinea worm eradication program on an international initiative that was about to get underway. In October 1980, we learned about the United Nations-sponsored International Drinking Water Supply and Sanitation Decade. One of the main objectives of that uh, UN decade was to provide safe drinking water to all of the people in the world who didn't then have it by 1990. The decade went from 1981 to 1990. They didn't succeed in that, but in the meantime, we went to them and, and said, look, if you're going to do this, here is another potential benefit of getting rid of, of providing clean drinking water. 
backers of the decade had not known about guinea worm disease up to that. They were looking to reduce cases of diarrheal diseases, uh, cholera, and other things like that. No mention of guinea worm disease. So it was on that basis that we were able to, to start that. Dr. Ruiz joined the program very early on in 1981, the very next year. And at that time, we had very little data, no mandate at CDC, almost uh, no money, and a big challenge. And in fact, the challenge was bigger than we thought it was uh, at that time. But by 1986, the Carter Center got involved, and we had, in fact, three big events. In uh, um, May of that year, we had the first World Health Organization resolution by ministers of health from around the world on guinea worm disease eradication. In July that year, we had our first African regional conference in Niamey, Niger. And in November that year, uh, President Carter went to Pakistan, spoke to the head of state of Pakistan in the course of other business about guinea worm disease. And in late November that year, we had a, an all-day conference here at the Carter Center talking about how the Carter Center might be able to help Pakistan get rid of uh, guinea worm disease. And that was a Carter Center's entry into guinea worm in November 1986. The very next month, we sent people out to Pakistan to begin consulting there, consulting there on uh, how they could work against guinea worm disease. Carter Center began another program in Ghana in 1987, in Nigeria in 1988, Uganda in 1991, Niger and Mali in 1993. In the meantime, we're working indirectly with other countries, with our colleagues, mainly at CDC. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time and you'll see the video on Sudan, and I just want to note that early on, we began with 20 countries, essentially, uh, and our early strategy was to deal with the 19, let Sudan wait until they stopped fighting. Sudan had been engaged in a uh, civil war, the last phase of which wound up lasting about 24 years. By then, was more than a decade and a half uh, old. So we said, we'll deal with the other 19, and we'll come to Sudan when they uh, finish fighting. By late 1994, we'd already stopped the disease in Pakistan, and we decided we'd better start, it would be a good idea to start, to see if we could start in, in uh, Sudan, which we did with President, uh, we uh, got President Carter to agree to go to a, uh, the first national conference on getting rid of disease in Khartoum in 1995, March. And, uh, there he was able to negotiate a ceasefire between the two sides in the Civil War. And that allowed us, along with WHO, UNICEF, Government of Sudan as well, to kickstart their guinea worm eradication program. By January of 2005, finally, there was a political settlement to the long-standing uh, Civil War. And later that year, we had a meeting uh, with uh, Guinea worm people from Sudan, workers from Sudan, leaders of the program, and the ministers of health, both from southern Sudan and from the north, here at the Carter Center. And uh, that uh, began the uh, program. And we've just had another uh, program review out in southern Sudan last month. So in a nutshell, now we've gone from 20 endemic countries to six remaining countries at the end of 2008. We've gone from an estimated 3.5 million cases in 1986 to less than 5,000 cases in 19, uh, sorry, in 2008. And we've gone from about a little over 23,000 cases, uh, 23,000 uh, villages with cases in 1993 to just over 1,000 villages remaining with cases in, uh, at the end of 2000, 
and eight. And the World Health Organization has already certified 180 out of 200 countries and political entities as free of guinea worm disease. The remaining uh, 21 countries to be certified include the countries that are still endemic and other countries that were recently endemic, some of the countries that were recently uh, uh, endemic. So we're going to now, um, in a minute, um, see a uh, video uh, showing uh, Dr. Ruiz, the guinea worm warrior, at work in southern Sudan and also showing the work of these worms. So we'll have the video now, please. We arrived at, at this woman and her small daughter who were both infected with guinea worm disease. The mother was very uh, poorly educated regarding the origin of, of guinea worm disease and uh, refused uh, attention for herself and for her child. As a result, uh, their wounds festered and when we arrived at the village, uh, they were in, in bad condition. So we had to um, make an extra effort to provide whatever first aid care we could provide to them. This was a, a traumatic experience for the child. I came to Sudan to assess the status of the program and to meet with Minister of Health officials and to check the status of the program at the village level. But I've noticed that it's just semantics really, but asking the question, do you have a filter, and telling them to bring the, fi the filter that they have tends to bring out two different responses. There are 16 Carter Center technical advisors uh, here and working hand-in-hand -hand with Sudanese counterparts. And once you train these men, then you can come and get with them every single time and you'll do it so fast. <laughs> these are very special people. They're, they're very dedicated. Uh, they're passionate about their work. And they are doing a great job. One of the things you do as a technical advisor, and as well as the staff, uh, is move things around. Logistics is a huge element of this operation because all of the fuel, for example, and spare parts and whatnot have to be uh, either flown by air, which is expensive, or by trucks uh, over large distances during the dry season. This is where we fill up jerry cans to bring into the field with us. And also one of our staff that works about half an hour away from here, we have to fill up a 200 liter drum and bring it to him because there's no safe water on his side. This year the rains have come very late and a lot of people are really suffering. And if this borehole 
was not here, they'd be drinking from unsafe water all over. So the most important thing is that we need to make sure that the system is working and we need to make a total overhaul. We need to overhaul the system, especially the volunteer and the agents of the network. In this Mr. McCoy Samuel is the director of the Southern Sudan Guinea Worm Eradication Program of the Ministry of Health of Southern Sudan. He's a very dedicated and hard-working person and extremely smart. My country, Southern Sudan, is very vast. Most of the socio-economic and health indicators are among the lowest in the world. infrastructure is terrible and it is only the Qatar Center that understands these uh, dynamics that they're able to bear with us and provide us the necessary logistic and financial support to be able to reach all those difficult areas in southern Sudan. In the process also it is actually empowering the communities to make decisions that influence their livelihood. Then <laughs> During the community meeting in Maki, we had the opportunity of uh, demonstrating to people uh, copper pots obtained from the pond that we're fetching water from. The process of filtering the water as we did and backwashing it into a clean glass with clean water. Uh, shows the, all of the myriad of organisms that are in there and this technique uh, always causes a big impression on people and it's a very powerful educational tool. This is the water that people have to, to drink and uh, they're in the process of filtering the water at the pond site, which is the correct way of, of doing it, before taking it back to the village. Here in Pongo, Alex, the field officer, had the great idea of getting everyone to greet us with their pipe filters and say mata. The idea being a reminder that you should always have your pipe filter with you. Mata, doctorio. Mata, 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 mata. So let's start right there and start counting. One, two, good. Uh huh. 
In these water sources, these stagnant water sources where the community draws their water, uh, we first test for copepod populations. And if we discover that there is a copepod population inside, then we go about applying the abate, which then whites out that population, making the water safe to drink. So uh, when used with other interventions, filters, basic health education, staying out of the water with guinea worm, it's a, it's a pretty good uh, measure for that. Without doubt, overcoming the challenges of educating people here in southern Sudan about what guinea worm is and where it comes from is daunting. Of the 20 countries that were originally endemic at the beginning of the campaign in 1986, 15 have eradicated the disease. Two more are expected to stop transmission uh, probably this year or early next year, and three countries remain, Sudan, Ghana, and Mali in that order. Sudan is the foremost country reporting the vast number of cases. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a guinea one. So we're very pleased with the progress, but the objective is to get to zero cases and that remains a daunting challenge. It is likely that Sudan will be the last place where guinea worm is eradicated from. As I mentioned, uh, Dr. Ruiz was with the uh, Centers for Disease Control in, uh, in 1981 when he came up to Atlanta from uh, a, a position with uh, CDC in, uh, in Puerto Rico and uh, was working at CDC when he joined uh, the guinea worm uh, eradication uh, effort at, with us at CDC. The, um, he took Jose uh, 
master's degree from the University of uh, Puerto Rico, has a doctorate in, in epidemiology from the University of Texas School of Public Health. At CDC, he headed the uh, Helminthic Disease Branch in the Division of Parasitic Diseases, where he worked on schistosomiasis, dengue fever, and other, uh, and other diseases. He uh, came to the Carter Center in 1992 after a total of over 27 years as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Public Health Service with CDC. And uh, for the past 10 years, since 1988, he has been director of our guinea worm eradication program at CDC. And so uh, with that, we'll begin the formal part of the conversations. Thanks, Don. I may add that the, um, as you saw in the film, um, we were not torturing that little girl. Actually, her mother had refused uh, uh, care for herself and the child days before, and uh, on the basis that that uh, the people who were going to provide the medical care, the first aid care, were going to uh, hurt them. And so, not knowing what the process was, she was setting up the little girl and making her very nervous and and there therefore she became even more hysterical than she would have otherwise uh, during our attempts to to extricate that worm from as you saw from her bunion which is a very sensitive part of the body and it, it really hurt her but she was also very uh, uptight uh, throughout that process i just wanted to add that uh, for your information, <laughs> Don, the floor is yours. I think the, the uh, I mean, one of the things that comes through for the movie is just the, uh, the torture. And I would just remind you that's one worm and was coming out of that child's uh, foot. Imagine having uh, three, four, six, 12 or more worms coming out of your body sens uh, uh, simultaneously. And uh, some of those worms coming out of uh, even more sensitive places uh, than that, if you can imagine that. If you can also imagine that scene multiplied uh, several dozens of time, uh, that uh, gives you a sense of the scene we encountered in Northern Ghana when uh, President Carter and uh, Ernesto and I and others were there in February of 2007 looking at a situation where uh, there'd been an explosion of the disease there. You have in your ha handout uh, a couple of maps giving you a sense of, maps of Sudan, just giving you a sense of the, the size of, uh, of, of that country. And um, that is another aspect of the special challenge in Sudan, which as the, the video showed, that's, we expect that to be the last stand, it's a very difficult area. We had, we in Sudan had a lot of, uh, got a head start because of the ceasefire, thank God, in 1995, which really allowed that program to start, even while the Civil War was going on. Mr. McCoy Samuel, who you saw there, in fact, was working on Guinea worm before the war ended, but he was working on it 
as an employee of the uh, central Khartoum government. He's from the south himself. And after the uh, war was settled, he uh, began and, and took over as a very capable national coordinator for the uh, people in, in southern Sudan. In addition to its vastness and uh, poor infrastructure, another big, uh, how to say, impediment in southern Sudan is that unlike some other places, but like other places as well, in southern Sudan, the guinea worm season, the season of uh, peak transmission is during the rainy season, which in Sudan is very long and which causes a lot of the areas to flood. It's the time of year when it's most difficult to get around. And a few other countries uh, on the border of, the, of uh, on uh, the southern uh, coast of, in West Africa, the peak guinea worm season is during the dry season when it's easiest to get around. So that's just another uh, aspect of uh, Sudan. Unless you might say something about the, uh, the size of the operation against guinea worm in Sudan now. Well, uh, <clears throat> We, uh, when, uh, after the, uh, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement was uh, signed in Sudan in, in January 2005, it, it took us, well, it took the Sudan government uh, most of that year to, be in the, to, be, to become organized in the South, and the Minister of Health and other uh, uh, key uh, people in the government of South Sudan were not appointed until September. And so we were not able to start working with the Ministry of Health on Guinea worm eradication and, um, and try to revitalize the program until beginning December of 2005 and up to this time. Uh, during 2006, we uh, took it upon ourselves together with our Sudanese counterparts there to assess uh, all of the villages in, in the context of southern Sudan um, in, in four key areas where the program knew cases in past years had been reported from. And um, around 15,000, as a result of that, around 15,000 uh, villages were um, brought into the system and uh, village volunteers were uh, were designated at, at each village, and each village is reporting about the presence of cases in those villages every month uh, through the system. They're supervised by other area supervisors that are also volunteer staff that cover more than just one village. And, they, and those uh, report to field officers who then report to the um, county level and then uh, eventually to the program. Uh, this has resulted in over 20,000 village volunteers and, and other staff, hundreds of field officers. Uh, we have, as you heard in the movie, 14 uh, expatriate technical advisors uh, there in Sudan helping the, um, the program. Uh, there are at least uh, half a dozen sub-offices in key places, 40 uh, storage areas in, spread out through the countryside uh, in, in key areas as well, because we have to uh, preposition all of the materials and, and resources uh, and do all the training and everything during the dry season, which is the period just after November through April. Around April, the rains come 
and all of this place has become pretty much uh, isolated because uh, flooding and uh, bad roads and uh, and so the, the program uh, in each endemic area needs to be self-contained. So there's a lot of work going on and it's a huge operation. We have you know 30 or 40 vehicles in, in the country and uh, all of the fuel has to be brought by truck and uh, and carried through the countryside by truck. It's it's a very uh, it's a very labor intensive uh, process. One of the things that strikes you also it comes through from the video is the uh, the poverty and and, and remoteness. Uh, though you really have to be there and see how long you have to fly or how long you have to drive to get to some of these places. But one characteristic of this disease is that it, it really is a disease of the end of the road, so-called, uh, in, um, in very, very remote uh, areas. And uh, in southern Sudan, they've had on top of that, the vastness, all of that. Um, well, Sudan became independent in 1956. Uh, what's that, uh, 52, uh, three years ago and they have been engaged in civil war between the North and the South for all but 10 and a half of those, uh, all but 10 and a half of those, of those years. So now that we have peace, one of the uh, intents in Southern Sudan, the Southern Sudanese, is to use the skin eradication program to show the world what they can do now that they do have peace. It might emphasize as well, obviously this is a, um, um, a terrible disease and anybody uh, can see that. But what may not be immediately apparent is how many children in these villages this disease keeps out of school, how many farmers it keeps from farming, how many parents it keeps from uh, running after their toddlers, etc. In uh, some of these Sudanese villages and in other countries uh, when this disease was really much more prevalent than it is now, you could have uh, 30, 40, 60 percent or more of a village population affected at the same time, each person being incapacitated for periods averaging two or three months, and those two or three months being during the peak agricultural season. So you had a huge impact on agriculture as well. And it, it uh, remains, a, um, I think, a, uh, something that bears pondering is we don't, have a, we don't have a vaccine. We don't have an injection we can give people to cure them. The knowledge we're using now has been around for a very long time. Even a bait was, just, was uh, known before World War II. Um, why has it taken so long for the world to finally say we're going to get rid of this uh, uh, disease? And there are a number of other diseases out there like that. But uh, finally, we are working to, uh, to get, get rid of it. But uh, in, in retrospect, I think it's, it's, it will be worth considering once this thing is gone, why did it take so long? Uh, we know why it's taking so long once we've engaged it, but why did it take so long to, uh, to engage it? I, I mentioned earlier that uh, the uh, challenge of getting rid of disease has proven to be uh, even more than we uh, thought it was. But one thing, especially for the younger people in the audience, you might... Uh, be aware that when we first started uh, the Carter Center's first programs in, well, second and third programs in Ghana and Nigeria, <clears throat> at that time, there was no email. Um, 
uh, uh, Ghana, you couldn't, you had to go through an operator to make a telephone call, so there was no fax. And uh, if you wanted to get a written piece of paper, a single sheet of paper with something uh, on it <clears throat> to Nigeria, for example, we had to send it by DHL at about $35 uh, a pop or so. Now, of course, we can communicate very easily with uh, easy telephone contact and, uh, and email. But that was one of the constraints in the, in the, in the beginning and a reason why, uh, well, this modern technology has allowed us to be much more uh, efficient uh, and, and effective than, uh, than before. That was a, a, a really big uh, constraint. The airplanes aren't much faster now, but at least communication otherwise much faster. Don, one other comment sure. about, about Sudan, uh, that uh, now that you have seen the movie, um, it, it was not self-evident here, but this film was uh, done pretty much in the eastern Equatoria area, which is shown on the map on your handout, so you can locate it there. This is one of the most uh, devastated areas by the civil conflict in southern Sudan. In 2006, uh, when I visited there, visited those same villages, or many of the same villages, um, there was not a single piece of uh, plastic or any other evidence of Western civilization in those villages. Everything was made out of leather, thongs, wood, local materials. People were in rags, most of them naked, both women and, and men, and a lot of the men, most of the men, uh, carrying AK-47s on their shoulders, which they still do to some degree. And now you saw in that film, two years later, uh, the number of jerry cans that were getting filled with water. Are not, so the civilized world is coming slowly in that, to that area uh, that was totally, the, the 19th century just passed by this area and many other parts of Sudan affected by the civil war. And so these people are traumatized, have been traumatized by that, by that war. There's a lot of alcoholism uh, in that area and other side effects of that, of that conflict as well. Speaking of the people, we might just note also that not only are the populations affected by guinea worm disease uh, remote, generally geographically, but very often, especially these last uh, cases in each country, they are, even among the remote people in the country, the most marginalized uh, people, often because for political reasons, for ethnic reasons, for uh, reasons I don't claim to, we don't, especially as outsiders, uh, fully understand. But it's been very striking that uh, the most difficult populations and often the last population in the area are populations that are uh, are marginalized. One group in Ghana, for example, was characterized in the literature when we began looking into it as effectively sharecroppers. They uh, had no uh, history themselves of having migrated into this area compared to their neighbors, but, on the, but their neighbors uh, had them under their thumb. And um, uh, there was a lot of resentment and stuff going uh, back and uh, forth there. The other thing about people I would underscore, you so illustrated Mr. McCoy there, is that uh, one of the things the Guinea worm program has done that I saw also in the smallpox eradication program is that it allows really good people to uh, shine and to come to the uh, to top. 
And uh, we were talking a bit earlier and have said this observation, and Esther and I many times, that uh, if we could have taken the two or three best national coordinators and cloned them so that we had uh, one each for each of those uh, 20 countries, uh, we would uh, not be here tonight talking about getting where I'm still being here probably. But that uh, was a very, very uh, striking difference. And one illustration of that as well that comes to mind was Chad, which is one of my favorite uh, anecdotes about this whole getting my medication program. We were in a situation of having, especially in the early days, even here at the Corner Center, very little money to deal with this disease. And in one sense, that was one of the fun, challenging aspects of it. Could we, how could we uh, um, deal with this thing with, uh, with very few uh, resources? But in, in Chad, we were trying to get this program started. We knew there was guinea worm disease there. We were trying to get a consultant in to help Chad get started. With the, when the people in Chad, Ministry of Health, was saying they wanted to get started. We were working through uh, World Health Organization and, uh, and UNICEF. And uh, we'd, we'd set up a meeting, and something would come up, insecurity of one sort of kind. Uh, United Nations can't send people, a consultant, in there. Then. This went on. Uh, two or three times, and, and finally we, were, we had this uh, consultation set up uh, through the United Nations, and uh, word came that there was insecurity in Chad, and the United Nations had a certain level of alert. Our consultant couldn't go. Well, that's when I tore out most of the last remaining parts of my hair, and we, we then uh, said, we're going to do this, and uh, we hired this consultant on the Carter Center, and by the end of that very same week, we had that person on the, on, the, on the ground there, assisted in that instance by the deputy director of the Peace Corps program, U.S. Peace Corps program in Chad. And I remember we were chasing him all over uh, in Jemena, the, the capital, by telephone. Uh, this is before email uh, as well. Uh, trying to find where he was so we could talk to him to tell him that we wanted to send this person there and would, would Peace Corps host him there, et cetera. But that was one of the uh, finest hours, I think, of the Carter Center in, in making this thing move. And in each instance, we've had different combinations of, uh, of organizations that have helped. In Chad and uh, Ivory Coast, it was Peace Corps that was helping us uh, mostly in the beginning. In uh, Nigeria, it was UNICEF. And, uh, but we are, are in, in, uh, in, in Mali and in Ghana, it was USAID that came to our, in the guinea worm, well, came to our rescue uh, to, in the fight against uh, guinea worm disease. So the, the challenge was to find whatever combination worked in, uh, in each country to move this thing uh, forward. Yeah, UNICEF also was key because they, uh, in the early days, late 1980s, we didn't have much funding and they, uh, uh, Mr. James Grant, who was the director of uh, UNICEF at the time, made sure that UNICEF provided uh, support for us to um, line up consultants who would go out to these countries and help them developing a, develop a plan of action for their national case search and, um, and planning beyond that as, as well. And so all of these countries were the extent of guinea worm in all these countries was assessed uh, thanks to the help from, uh, from UNICEF in those years. I might say something also uh, about water supply, because that's been a, uh, 
uh, vaccinating. I, I told you earlier that this began on the back of the International Drinking Water Supply and Sanitation Decade. And uh, if that decade had successfully brought drinking, safe drinking water to all populations that had it, we would have been done. Uh, because uh, this worm, there's no animal reservoir. Once people are consistently drinking clean water, uh, it's gone and it's gone forever. And remember, only a small fraction of the villages that don't have safe drinking water have guinea worms. So we were talking about even a subset of that subset of villages. And it might seem relatively uh, simple, uh, even if you had the money, to get uh, safe drinking water to these villages with guinea worm disease. But uh, that has been, of, of all the interventions against guinea worm disease, health education, providing cloth filters, using uh, a bait to uh, put in the water, as you saw there, and um, doing case containment, effectively hospitalizing people or isolating them, of all the interventions, the drinking water supply one is the best one because it, it provides clean drinking water, which eliminates a lot of other diseases as well, and, and, but it's also the most expensive. But it's also been the most difficult, far more difficult than uh, I think we, either of us imagined uh, going in there. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, uh, none of the countries, none of the 14 countries that have eradicated the disease so far has done it having had all of the villages covered with at least one safe source of drinking water. And the reason for that is because the water, the targeting of water is done by water sector organizations. Uh, the Carter Center and other partners in the campaign are assisting the guinea worm programs to do the health education, the abate, the uh, filters, and all of these other interventions. Water. Uh, resides in the water with the water sector organizations who have the mandate, the uh, funding, and the capacity, the technical capacity to uh, to do that kind of work. For some reason, uh, those organizations that are providing water, even going back to the early 1980s during the water drinking water and sanitation decade, this have decided to focus on only a single intervention, and it's the the famous borehole well. Um, which is uh, a technology, it certainly can provide water, but um, it's subject to uh, whether the geology of the place permits water to be drawn from aquifers that are near enough for that kind of technology to draw water from. Uh, it is subject to a lot of politics because the politicians like to sidetrack uh, boreholes for their own communities as opposed to where they really are needed the most, for example, Guinea worm endemic villages, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So there, there are a lot of impediments. Uh, boreholes are not, uh, it's not a sustainable technology. A very good borehole built in, uh, in, in the best conditions may last uh, a year or two without the need for repairs, but that's, that's the rare exception. Most boreholes break down within the first three or four months. The water sector organizations also believe that what they do in the villages to get the villages to uh, get involved with the borehole is enough for the villagers to feel that they own the borehole and therefore the notion is that the villagers themselves will want to have the water 
continuing to flow all the time, and they will see to it that uh, repairs are done, and they will even pay for those repairs. Uh, this doesn't work in, in the real world in Africa. It doesn't work. Those boreholes are, are, are provided. Water flows for some time, and then they break down, and there is nobody apparent uh, that comes around to repair those boreholes. So you have a situation where on paper you have many villages, presumably with safe water, but in reality there is no functional borehole uh, available for them. And invariably they gravitate back to using unsafe sources of drinking water. Water sector organizations, uh, again, have not, and, and the government themselves, the, the, uh, the uh, people in government, the Ministry of Water Supply, um, have not uh, seen the value of engaging in traditional African ways of providing safe water, like hand dug wells. There's nothing to break with those. Once you, you, you uh, built one of those, it lasts for years and years without the need for repairs. And, and there are other low-cost technologies also that can be used uh, here and there to uh, provide or, or supplement uh, safe, safe drinking water. So uh, for all those reasons, the, the provision of water, of safe drinking water through this borehole technology to Guinea Worm endemic villages is always lagging behind and uh, often not targeted quite correctly as we would like to, and it's, it's very uh, frustrating at times for us to uh, see this happening, but that's, that's the real world. Another important consideration in regard to water is that uh, often, even where there is a uh, safe drinking water supply newly installed that's still functioning, people don't like the taste. It's not a matter of the water being tasting metallic or something like that, it would say uh, water the equivalent of Atlanta city water, but not chlorinated, of course. But the uh, people are used to drinking water like that that you saw in the film. They're used to the taste of that water. And um, many people will uh, continue to uh, walk past a safe water source to go to the old source. One of the things about the cloth filter, which does not take out viruses and bacteria, but does take out the, uh, the, the guinea worm uh, parasite, is that at least it leaves people with their taste, uh, their, their tasty uh, water with the viruses and, uh, and bacteria. But that's a, another very important uh, uh, consideration because on first blush, you'd say, well, we provided the safe drinking water, we go home, no. Uh, there's a lot of health education involved. Nesto illustrated in the film the uh, importance of showing people that the little things swimming around in the water that they're drinking. That's one uh, way that uh, helps educate them uh, as well. And there are just lots of other considerations in that whole water supply uh, sector. We should also, um, I would just mention, one of the other most important things in the, uh, in the program has been, uh, as you know, uh, the roles of uh, President and Mrs. Uh, Carter in raising money and uh, uh, accelerating access to, uh, to heads of state, to donor organizations, to uh, other uh, implementing organizations to help uh, mobilize uh, them. But another of the most important things that President Carter did was to, uh, to invite 
uh, two then former African heads of state. Uh, first, uh, General uh, Amadou Tamari Touré of Mali, who had just uh, turned over government to an elected civilian leader uh, in 1992 when we went there. And then in 1998, he recruited, President Carter recruited, uh, former Nigerian head of state, General Yakubu Bouwan. And uh, General Toure, who doesn't speak English, not only toured all over Mali, the endemic areas, mobilizing uh, political and other leaders uh, there at local uh, levels and visiting all of these endemic villages, he went to every one of the other French-speaking African countries that had uh, guinea worm disease, speaking to their heads of state and their ministers of health uh, as well. And as it turns out, unfortunately, ironically, Mali is going to be the last one of the French-speaking countries now to get rid of uh, guinea worm disease. In the case of General Gowan, he went all over Nigeria at a time, beginning at a time when the Nigerian program had been stagnant for four or five years for, for several reasons. But General Gowan went into a lot of uh, Guinea worm endemic villages, went there with having, having talked to the governor of that area, the county equivalent administrator and public health person of that area as well and told them that after he went to the village and, and after he went back uh, home, that he was going to uh, come back and see if people did what they promised him that they were going to do. And so that was an important energizer of the Nigerian uh, program as well. Final point I would make now is to note that uh, Nigeria started out with over 653,000 cases of guinea worm disease. This year they're reporting 38 cases of guinea worm disease and we think they probably have broken transmission already, but we won't know that until about this time next year. One of the most challenging countries was Uganda, which started out with 126,000 cases with a lot of insecurity in the northeast part of Uganda, bordering Sudan, a lot of insecurity up there as well. And uh, Yet, uh, of the uh, highly endemic countries, Uganda was the uh, first to get rid of uh, guinea worm disease. I think their last case was in about 2003, having started their program in, in 1991. They had very strong support from the top right through. And uh, a very, uh, very second national coordinator they appointed was a very energetic person as well, for whom a challenge was something to be solved, uh, not something to wring your hands about. We will then uh, start uh, taking questions. I want to invite you, if you uh, want to ask a question, to go to one of the microphones. We've got one on either, either side, and we'll uh, be as succinct as you can, and we will uh, be as succinct as we can in uh, responding. Anyway. Yeah, we can hear you. Um, have any other diseases been reduced as a result of the guinea worm eradication efforts? Not that I know of. <laughs> I, we don't have well, any documentation. I think, I think the key thing is documentation. Yeah. Some, we have to assume, have been uh, reduced uh, where water supply, despite all the things, where water supply has been brought into some areas in the name of guinea worm disease. That has, would have reduced... Uh, some other diseases, uh, definitely. And I think very, very indirectly, the improvement that we don't have documentation of, good documentation of, the improvement in agriculture has certainly saved some people from nutrition. And I would expect that uh, we know as well that uh, 
if a household had guinea worm last year, and there are toddlers in that household on average, that um, <clears throat> statistically, those children are much more likely to be malnourished this year. If, there was, if any one of the parents had guinea worm last year, and so that would have been reduced uh, as well indirectly as, as an indirect uh, impact of this. Thank you. Yes. is that your goal is to eradicate um, the disease. And what I'm not really clear about, although I think you may have answered it, I just want to be sure, once you eradicate the disease, in other words, the hosts that carry the parasite, does that mean the parasite will die itself? No, the parasite will not die, die itself. What we're trying to do is stop transmission if you, if you have guinea worm disease, my goal is to prevent you from contaminating water. Because the only way your infection can go forward to others in your family or community is if you contaminate water and then others unwittingly fetch that water after a short time and drink it. So we're trying to um, isolate the patient, manage the patient, and prevent contamination of water. And once you do that in a community uh, well enough, then there is no one else infected from which transmission can go on to others, unless the, the disease is introduced by somebody from elsewhere where it's occurring and brings it back into the community. But that's, that's the process by which you stop transmission of the disease. But the worm only lives for one, one year, year. And it dies. once you've contaminated water. If uh, at the end of that year, the worm has to either come out when it dies or is absorbed. If it dies in the body and is absorbed, it disappears. But there, this worm has to pass through people to sustain itself. And, so, so, and there's no animal reservoir. So once we've stopped transmission going through people, uh, unlike poliovirus, for example, or smallpox virus, you cannot freeze this worm and, and sustain it either and bring it back later. It will be gone. So it will not exist in the water sources. Or anywhere else. Or anywhere else. And, and this is a very uh, specific parasite that affects only men. It's adapted to humans. People. It affects people. people. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Why is guinea worm so hard to eradicate after people learn how they got it? I think one of, one of the things that strikes me uh, the most is, uh, again, I mean, uh, you know, those of us, you're, you're born certain places, you get a lot of education, and you assume certain things. People in these communities do not like guinea worms. And they, as I'm fond of saying, they have not been having this disease because they, they like having it. They haven't understood it. In addition to that, and how to protect themselves against it. Once they understand that, they, they act. But in addition to that, uh, people have evolved, communities have evolved over the centuries, very, 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 very strong traditional beliefs stronger in some areas than others. They have all kinds of reasons as to why they're having this disease. And so what you're up against is things that people have had handed down for generations as explanations as to what this disease is occurring. And they are uh, often 
distrusting of outsiders, especially when you consider, as I said earlier, the fact that you, some of these communities are marginalized uh, anyway and have been uh, put upon by other folks, even in their own, own societies. And so for all that reasons, for all those reasons, it's not uh, as simple a matter as it might seem to say, all right, this worm is coming for you, drinking water. All you have to do is uh, not drink dirty water anymore, and, and it would end. Much more complicated than that. Thank you for the question. I, I would add uh, also that uh, in many of those communities, as, as you saw in the movie, um, people um, have a very uh, intense dedication to um, uh, certain chores that must be done uh, at the time because it's, it's either the season to plant or the season to harvest or the season to weed the crops and how much food they will have the following year depends on the work that they do now and that has such a priority for them that they are going to go out to the fields and if they don't have any other options than to drink water from a pond which may be contaminated or not that's the only water they have. Their work and, and their crops are, are far more important than anything else. And, and so that's why they become infected. And so we, the programs, need to learn to work with the people in these kinds of situations, even in faraway places from their villages, uh, in their hamlets, farming hamlets uh, and other areas like that, to, um, to uh, make sure that they uh, take steps to not get infected. One of the reasons why the pipe filters were invented is precisely for this situation. Yes. Um, I have a statement and a question. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Gambia in West Africa, and while I was there, I had the opportunity to work on a, um, a proposal to actually finish a borehole well. And I would like to say that in communities, uh, especially small villages, when a borehole well breaks, it's just the sheer fact that they don't have the money to fix it. It's not necessarily that the water tastes different, but just the fact that there is a complete lack of money in the community. Um, and my question is, what do you think is the most successful part of your um, multi-stage campaign? Because I know there are also um, campaigns going on against malaria and AIDS. Why is this one so successful? Uh, good question. Attention to detail. Uh, dedication, uh, discipline, and uh, constant attention to detail, and, and making sure that the, uh, the data collected about the status of the program is valid, and, uh, and using that information to drive the direction that the program should take. Those are the, those are the, uh, the key ingredients. If, if you don't do that, the program will eventually become disarrayed in here or there or overall as well. So it takes a lot of uh, effort to keep, um, to assist the programs because that's what we do. We don't run the programs. This is not Carter Center guinea worm programs. These are national guinea worm programs. We're there providing technical and financial support. 
and, uh, and, and, and sometimes uh, working with our partners, uh, we have to, uh, to get you know, nose to nose with each other regarding what needs to be done and why. And uh, sometimes it's not easy, but it, it takes that kind of, of effort. And uh, once we, we have a modus operandi with, with the program, then things go a lot smoother. But that's what it takes. I would, I would add also the importance of, um, of mobilizing the communities. And I would assert that passion trumps money anytime. Now, we need money to run this program, but uh, often people get wrapped up in the money and they're buying this, that, or the other, and uh, we don't have the kind of attention to tail. The other point is that the, the challenge of an eradication program is absolute. And so uh, the Guinea worm eradication program doesn't have competition from malaria or any of those other things. The only one that's competition you know, at this time with us is polio eradication. It's only under the absolute demands of an eradication program are you required to do that. The control program, however you, you defined it, is by definition less demanding. And so uh, an eradication program is going to call out uh, more, demand uh, more from you. Another point I would, would make is that we have been innovative and not wed to it. We don't care how guinea worm goes. We want it to go. We have no um, uh, favorites among health education, cloth filters, using a bait, water supply, or water supply is favored where we can afford it. Uh, that, but, but otherwise, and, and we're, we're constantly looking for, um, you know, the disease is not going away here. Why? And figuring out that why and then adjusting things to do it. And Esso himself, for example, uh, came upon when our uh, filter donations uh, were tapering off, hit upon the solution of rather than putting a whole piece of uh, nylon, the expensive nylon filter cloth over the edge of uh, one of these uh, water containers to sew a smaller piece of nylon cloth in the middle of less expensive cloth and filter it that way. That was one intervention. You heard about the pipe filters uh, as well. We've been inventive about how we use our data, as I like to say, to make the right people uncomfortable, usually in ministries uh, of health and developing agencies. So all of those, uh, all of those kinds of things have also gone uh, into it. But we are intending to write up the lessons of this program so that others can apply them to other programs uh, as well in the future. Thank you. Yes. I am most impressed by your endurance and your willingness to engage in contexts that are socio-politically challenged and in crisis. And I wonder to what extent your efforts entail or to how long you spend building trust within communities that might be at odds with one another um, so as to complete your work, um, if that is clear. Well, I would say uh, perhaps this is more relevant now in, in Sudan than in any other context that we're working on, although to some extent that also uh, was evident to us in, in Ghana uh, at one time. The, um, the, the, the different ethnic groups in Sudan uh, have their own cultures and, and their own set of 
animosities and, and uh, against each other uh, going back uh, perhaps centuries. And, uh, and even between the same uh, tribal group, you have different clans which may be at odds with each other. And uh, the Guinea Worm Program has to work uh, in those areas notwithstanding what's going on. The safety of our staff and the staff of the, of the national government are first and foremost, and we're never gonna compromise that. So often in Sudan, we've had to remove ourselves from the area to allow things to become more peaceful. But once, once those uh, insecurities are, are uh, die down, then, then we go back and we work with the communities um, on a community-by-community community, uh, basis. The uh, people working in the program are from those same communities, and they know each other, and they, uh, most of the staff, uh, except the expatriates, are Sudanese, and, uh, and, and they are selected from the areas where the work is ongoing, so they blend in uh, with the groups that may be at odds with each other at, at one time or another. Uh, that's what I would say. Uh, th there's nothing we can do to stop in uh, insecurity if it happens. Uh, it's not something that the Guinea Worm Program can control. Might might mention in addition that this has been uh, maybe a more frequent challenge than you might imagine, perhaps. Uh, we focus on Sudan now. Ernesto mentioned uh, northern Ghana as being yeah. a big conflict area, exploded the Guinea Worm Eradication Program uh, some years ago. Civil war in Ivory Coast. In the case of Ivory Coast, we were fortunate in that we got in with the help of U.S. Peace Corps and UNICEF mainly to hit, I think they were down to uh, half dozen still endemic villages in uh, late 2001 when we didn't know a civil war was coming, but we knew we wanted to get rid of guinea worm, and we did everything we could to put all of the interventions, UNICEF put some wells in there, we did uh, abate, water supply, et cetera, really hit those communities hard with interventions, and thank God we did, because in September 2002, the civil war began, the endemic area was cut off from the central government. You had some very courageous people moving back and forth, but we were lucky in having hit there. I mentioned Uganda, Earlier. We're having problems now with uh, Tuareg-affected areas in Mali and Niger uh, to an extent. We've had flare-ups, insecurity in, in Nigeria and various other places. So it's been a frequent thing, but the short answer to your question, why we deal with this, is that we have no choice. The disease is there, the program's got to be there. And uh, while we don't want to put ourselves or anybody else, else at undue risk, you do what you can around the ages, edges, wait until uh, the, the conflict is settled, and then uh, go in. And, and, and even before outsiders can go in, uh, some uh, local people are able, usually, to deal with it there as well. A failure of this campaign is not an option. Yes. Thank you. I had a, the opportunity to visit Southern Sudan last year for the polio eradication program. And by visiting the areas, it became apparent that the sensitivity of the surveillance was actually much lower than, than we expected or that we thought. So I'm wondering two questions for the uh, guinea worm programs. One is, what strategies are you using to ensure that you are capturing the cases throughout the, the area despite the difficulties? And how confident are you that, that you really are catching almost all the cases there? In the, in the context of Sudan, the, um, and in, in all other Guinea worm endemic countries, uh, the program 
the basic unit of the program is the village. So we have a village volunteer in each village which is trained to look for cases in the community daily and, and to register those cases, often in the context of South Sudan as well, using a form for illiterate persons uh, and record the cases. Those cases are then confirmed by the volunteer supervisors who make sure that, that these are real cases of guinea worm disease. They meet the standard definition for what a case of guinea worm is and records the age, the sex, the name of the patient, the, they, the date the worm came out, the date the worm was fully extracted, et cetera. All that information is in a village case register in each village. And that information moves from the village to the Payam, which is the district in, in, uh, in the context of South Sudan, to the county, to the national level, by the 20th of the month. The, uh, <clears throat> not only cases in villages are, are recorded, but also cases in cattle camps are monitored as well. Because what is really important for the Guinea worm eradication effort in a given place is to figure out where is transmission occurring. And that's where you apply all of the interventions against transmission of Guinea worm disease. And so the, this question of where is transmission occurring is really the most critical thing to figure out in each area where the Guinea worm program is. But each village has a mini Guinea worm eradication program for that village and it's monitored by a supervisory staff from, from, from the area. Was it last year you said you were in Sudan? Yes. The, uh, and of course, polio was supposed to have been gone from Sudan. I should point out as well that the Guinea worm program has a huge advantage over the smallpox, over the polio eradication program. Polio has the advantage of having a vaccine in an only two week incubation period. We have the disadvantage with guinea worm of having a one year long incubation period. But they have the huge advantage of that if you have guinea worm, you're gonna know it. Uh, in the case of polio, the estimate is something like 100 cases or more for every um, clinical case of uh, polio. That's a huge disadvantage to have 99 people running around don't know they have uh, polio infecting other people and you don't know they have uh, polio uh, either. And so we have an advantage. The other point I would make is that at the beginning of the programs, you don't care fundamentally uh, have, you don't need precision in the numbers of cases. At this stage, uh, we do. And a little bit further along in the Sudan program, we will start offering cash reward, or the program there will start offering cash rewards for reporting cases to get everybody alerted to the need to uh, give everybody an incentive to report any case that they become aware of. One of the things we're also doing now is using uh, photographs, as we did in the smallpox program, to show people, uh, never mind what the local wording might be, have you seen something like this? That's particularly effective, effective with young children, because whereas adults might be inclined, some adults might be inclined to hide a case. Stranger comes in showing this kind of picture. If a child knows about it, most children will tell you. Um, yes. 
First of all, I want to congratulate you on the work that you've done. Uh, I was involved in smallpox eradication in Afghanistan, and um, you know, so I have some understanding of how difficult it is to move things from place to place and get people involved. It sounds like you've had a tremendous program in getting people, volunteers, in every uh, village and stuff that you've set up. And that in itself should break down people's concern the next disease that we take in or try to take on or the drinking water and this kind of stuff. And as you have piggybacked on top of the drinking water program, do you see any groups trying to piggyback on your program uh, to, to take on another task? Oh boy, do we. Go ahead. <laughs> well, we, we have uh, from the very beginning invited others to to fill the vacuums uh, that occur when we complete the job in a village or in an area or a district and, and use uh, those volunteers, retool them, retrain them to do other useful things. Uh, unfortunately, uh, although nature abhors a vacuum, uh, that vacuum hasn't been filled. and, and People keep talking about it all the time, but nobody comes behind to make use of this, uh, this trained people, uh, at least this legacy that the Guinea World Program can potentially uh, leave behind in terms of at least a few trained, trained people around. Does the national, do the national governments ever pick up on what you've done? No, we have invited, you know, so we know that there are other uh, nationwide uh, public health programs uh, in these countries and that could use the volunteers. Uh, but that hasn't happened in the past. Nowadays with the, uh, the so-called new notion of integrated uh, neglected tropical diseases, there seems to be a more uh, aggressive move towards trying to utilize all of the resources that are out there. One concern we have is that we don't want our, uh, the guinea worm programs to get distracted or sidetracked by uh, have, having everybody uh, hanging on the skirts of the guinea worm program to do their work kind of thing. But uh, our job is to work ourselves out of a job. So uh, as we move out, uh, certainly uh, there's plenty of room and opportunities for others to uh, to take over. A couple of the better national coordinators have uh, wound up on their, their feet in, in Uganda. The uh, person who headed the Guinea worm program there, um, who was very energetic, is now in charge of their malaria program. And, uh, but uh, this is a legacy uh, of the program, but uh, it, there has not been systematic capture of these people. Uh, in a few instances in Nigeria, that same General Gawan persuaded some governors and state commissioners of health to take on particularly good guinea worm people who were being left uh, behind now that guinea worm been eliminated from there. But that uh, has been far less common than it should have been in, in our opinion. Uh, you have self-selected people who have now experienced as well. My question has to do with the end game. What's the predicted date out there? Do you want to make a prediction? And with that, following up on the surveillance question, the surveillance that's happening in Sudan right now is, we've got issues still in Sudan. What about the countries where it's been eradicated? What's really happening there? Because the, you know, the, the 
depth that has to be looked at in the villages, that's not happening probably in the, in the areas where it's already been eradicated. So how do we know that it's not popping up in other areas? So if you can just talk a little bit about the end game and what the surveillance in the areas that have already been eradicated. Well, the uh, December 31st, 2009 is the official target date now uh, for getting rid of this. We're probably going to go over that in, in a few places, hopefully for not very, very long. Uh, you know, we're not going to know, even when the end has happened, we're not going to know it until at least a year later. Um, I myself, Ernesto can speak for himself, have given up on additional predictions of when it is as soon as possible, and that's not soon enough, as far as we can. But we think we'll be able to come close to that target date. Uh, the World Health Organization has a responsibility for certifying uh, countries, and among the things they do is they don't pretend to say, to be able to say, that there is no guinea worm now and hasn't been any in country X. What they do uh, seek to affirm is that if there had been a case of guinea worm disease in country X, country X would have known about it. And uh, the way they try to verify that is, first of all, a period of at least three years between the last known case in the community, last known indigenous case, and when it would be certified by WHO. They check the records to make sure that people have been, been asking and have been uh, getting nil reports from these areas, things like that. Do some spot checks and, and also, in, in every instance, uh, cash reward. That's publicized and what you can check there is do people know about the reward? Do they know what to do if they see a case of getting worm disease? And if those things are in place, you can be much more uh, assured that it's, it's gone. And the fact that this is such a spectacular infection is on our side. Uh, it gets people's attention, and it's, it's harder to hide than some other problems. I got here kind of late because of traffic, but I have a question, a uh, pretty good question, about Mali. Okay, Mali uh, supposedly have a a president that really probably a little bit reticent about helping you guys get rid of this disease. Uh, all over the countries, we've got about five different countries here lined up, but Sudan have mainly more problems because of the political, political situation right now. But now about Mali, I wonder, is that the communication barrier between the villagers or what really is the problem? I want to know. There are, there are only uh, 416 cases in Mali reported uh, this last year, in 2008. And they're all in the, in the eastern part of Mali. That's where the Tuareg uh, people are. They're, they're nomads. And they are an, a variety of, of Tuaregs. They're red Tuaregs, they're white Tuaregs. They're black Tuaregs, they're the Bella people, which are the former slaves. And so there is a caste system there. And these people move around uh, during the year, mainly because they're seeking water and pasture for their animals. Um, and that's where there will be transmission in this part of Mali is during the summertime, coincident with the rainfall. And uh, it's Part of the Sahara Desert, it's a very harsh environment, as harsh as some of the environments in Sudan. And, uh, and these people move constantly. They don't, most of them do not live in settled villages. 
they camp. They, they have campamats in, in Frances. And, uh, and, and you don't know where they're going to set up their, their camp the next time around. They're here this year, next year they may be a few kilometers away. They also split up into different subgroups and no outsider, uh, including me, knows exactly why these people split up in the way they do and, and where they go. They themselves know, and even over long distances, the uh, so-called chef de fraction, which is the, uh, the leader of that group, knows where the various subgroups are, and they have a way of communicating with themselves. Uh, these are tough people to, to work with. They're, they're also, like in, in some, with some tribal groups in Sudan and, and, and certainly in Ghana, they are look up, looked down upon by others in, in Mali they're, because they are the most disenfranchised. And one of the reasons for the insecurity up in that area is precisely this, and this has been going on for, for many years. It's, it's not anything new. But their mobility and their um, lack of cooperation with, with the program in many instances, uh, although that's getting better and better, are uh, reasons why the program has some level of serious difficulty in tracking down the places where these people are and putting a program in that area soon enough, early enough, to detect the cases on time and to prevent contamination of water. So it's most of the time, not most of the time, but often when, uh, when a case occurs, a case of guinea worm occurs, uh, perhaps more than one day has gone by. And so that gives that infected person an opportunity to contaminate water. Who gets infected, we will not know until next year because of this one year long incubation period. And that's yeah. what you might point out as well, that uh, most of the cases remaining in Mali now are a result of one Quranic student who, who walked, uh, what, over 100? Uh, 400 kilometers. Kilometers and contaminated an area that had not known guinea worm uh, before. before. Most of Mali is free of guinea worm now, but this uh, residual problem is the result of, most of it is the result of contamination of a completely yeah. new area. And as I said earlier, it's uh, unfortunate and ironic that uh, this has happened in, in Mali where uh, now President Touré has been uh, so helpful in helping to get rid of guinea worm in all the other uh, Francophone endemic countries. You, you have a map there that shows the movement of some of those cases. And even uh, this last year, we, we learned that 23 people went from this area of Mali uh, into Algeria. And this is the middle of the Sahara. Now, no one here probably comprehends how people can move the way they do in the middle of the Sahara, but there's a lot of movement. There is a lot of movement, and this example exemplifies that. Uh, some uh, 12 of them traveled 600 miles into northwestern Algeria, into this place called Gardaia, which is there on the map, and two others travel almost the same distance, 600 uh, miles over towards the uh, northeast of, of Algeria. Of the people who went to the northwest, a few of them have now moved into Libya. 
presumably those countries have uh, a fairly uh, hefty public health infrastructure and uh, they're most likely going to be taken care of when, when and if the worm, any more worms come out from them. But at least a few of them uh, from, from that group uh, did develop uh, guinea worm infection. Uh, and we know that because the authorities there reported it. But this one Quranic student uh, that caused this outbreak it, uh, caused about 360 other people to, to have the infection as well, just one individual. So humans are the vectors of this disease. We'll take one more question. You had a question already, right? No. Oh, I'm sorry. That's Go okay. ahead. Here. Um, with hopefully some other eradication programs on your heels, as has been mentioned tonight, what can you tell us would be the most important factor in keeping momentum and support um, for this program or any eradication program with repeated setbacks where people's enthusiasm or passion does tend to start to wane? have to continue to be able to continue to show progress and that your strategy uh, is, is working. My personal view is that the uh, polio program made a couple of strategic mistakes in the beginning, the most fundamental of which was that they didn't start in the worst areas uh, because those are going to take the, the longest uh, time. But other than that, one, I would say anybody going to a new program uh, expects setbacks. That's the nature of the beast, especially since you've got to go everywhere where this uh, disease is but, and you've got to remain flexible and uh, willing to change your strategy to meet new circumstances. I'm going to take one more question and then we'll wrap it up. Thank you. Um, my question is, I'm curious if the practice of offering a cash reward for reporting cases is a regularly used practice. And I'd be curious to understand the thinking that goes into establishing the value for the reward and how you avoid creating a disincentive um, within communities where we've already You've already divulged that one community may have angst or uh, frustration towards another community. You want to respond to that? Yeah, I'm not sure I understand the last part of the question. Uh, Essentially, that somebody might contaminate another community in order to get a cash reward. Yeah. Well, uh, there is always uh, one hears a lot of cynicism about this. Uh, uh, before I answer your question, I might say that in, in a number of countries, uh, we have heard repeatedly over the years that the uh, people working in the program would never want guinea worm to disappear because they would lose their job, which is a similar kind of uh, situation. So one can think as cynical as one wants, but that's not what happens in reality. Uh, the rewards are given to only to people who uh, who, uh, who are confirmed to have a real case of guinea worm disease. They're not given to anyone who uh, is trying to fake the disease or, or, or who has a swelling or um, any other condition. There is a clear-cut definition for what the clinical presentation of a case of guinea worm is, and that standard has to be met, and it is, it's very thoroughly, thoroughly observed. So you cannot manufacture cases of guinea worm. Um, the other, the other modality that's uh, employed is that, um, that uh, for example, uh, in a neighboring country, it's offering rewards. And if people are, are um, thought to be going there just to collect the reward, 
their infection is in this country, but they're going the next country over to, to get the reward. The, the modality is that that country never offers, pays the reward to a case that's imported from another country. If you're not resident of that country, you don't get the reward. You're taken care of. Your, um, all attempts are made to contain you, contain transmission from your infection so that you don't contaminate others, but the reward is not given to you. So those are examples of measures that are taken to minimize uh, abuses of that kind. Uh, but as you know, uh, if somebody wants to abuse the system, there will be always a way of, of doing that. So uh, the objective here is to try to keep that to a very minimum so that it's, the job gets done. Most countries with Guinea worm have started out offering uh, the equivalent of uh, a couple of U.S. dollars for the reward. And another thing that happens is that as cases get fewer and fewer, and the, the, the uh, um, pain of missing any one case gets greater and greater, the reward increases. And there is still extant a reward of $1,000 U.S. for anybody who reports a case of smallpox uh, anywhere, if anybody wants to look for that. The other consideration <laughs> is that the, um, you know, if uh, your, your scenario of I want to collect a reward so I go and, and contaminate somewhere, it's going to be, even if I'm successful and they don't kill me before I can collect the reward for infecting them, it's going to be a year before they would come up with guinea worm as well. So that wouldn't be a likely uh, scenario. Thank you for clarifying. You're welcome. All right, but I want to... Um, Thank everybody for, uh, for, uh, for, for joining us. We've, we've talked about a lot of the challenges and stuff. We could spend probably an equal amount of time though talking about some of the beauty of these places and uh, flora and fauna and uh, scenery and, and stuff and experiences, uh, very warm experiences with people in these uh, communities. I, I'm, uh, we're both uh, often struck by um, how uh, smart and humble people are, despite their, uh, their, uh, their poverty. But I want to thank everybody for uh, taking the time to be with us for your input and for your questions, including those who are maybe watching uh, online and for learning about uh, some of the problems that we're uh, dealing with, uh, the skinny worm disease being one of our programs here at the Carter Center. The next program in uh, the Conversation at the Carter Center series is called Beyond Free and Fair very important uh, aspect. That's going to be held on Wednesday, February 25th. Uh, and in that, you will hear from leaders of our international election observation uh, organizations, not just ours, but others, as they, discover, as they discuss witnessing elections in countries emerging from warfare or under threat of new conflict. You can read more about this event and uh, respond to the offer of invitation online at www.cartercenter.org slash conversations beginning January 25th. That's the whole address. The, uh, uh, you can sign up in the lobby also to receive email updates about other future events at the, the Carter Center. And once again, uh, on behalf of all of us, Nesto and me and all of us here at the Carter Center, thank you very much. And also for those of you who are supporters of uh, the Guinea Worm and other programs at the Carter Center, we thank you for thank your you. support of this as well. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center. 
online at cartercenter.org.